So, today, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And while you're turning in your Bibles, I will uh, put in a shameless plug here. This Wednesday, I didn't do iThirst, if you're not familiar. iThirst is a weekly um, broadcast that I do from my office here at the church, and we tackle biblical subjects, all types of different things. And I didn't do one last week because I had a, a job that I had to do. I had to climb a tree and, and, and uh, get, get that down and take care of that job. But this Wednesday, I'm going to take on the subject of interracial marriage and what the Bible has to say about interracial relationships, interracial marriage, and see if we can uh, really build a really good, firm biblical foundation uh, surrounding that topic and what you might think about that topic, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, and challenge some cultural ideas and things like that. So if you're interested, that uh, goes live on Facebook and on YouTube. You can search the Well Church Landrum on YouTube to find it, and you can uh, look, look it up on the Wells page on Facebook, and we'll tackle the subject of, of interracial marriage next Wednesday at 8 a.m., okay? All right, if you're, if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, say amen. amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. Let's pray before we get started, and then we want to jump right into the text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to get in your word today. We pray, God, that we would understand, that we would uh, be able to rightly divide and exegete the text. God, we pray that your spirit, that you, Holy Spirit, would write these truths on our heart and cause us to walk in them and to obey them and to live according to every word that you have said. Lord Jesus, help me to get out of the way and just present the text as it is. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to be looking primarily at verses 12 through 18, but I'll read some surrounding text just to give context and, and so on. The um, title of today's message is, When to Make No Use of Your Rights. When to Make No Use of Your Rights. So as I read, 1 Corinthians 9, 12 through 18. If others share the, this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." For if I preach the gospel, that gives, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, the funny thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is that there are so many nuggets in this text. You could come to this text and preach from several different angles. You could preach from several different perspectives. You could preach on Paul's use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You could preach on uh, the way that you lay out church government, whether or not 
pastors and preachers and teachers should get paid. You could preach on the rights of individuals. You could preach on the, the primacy and priority of the gospel. So many different angles you could come at this text with. And you would be right on many of those fronts. And, and in that same breath, that's why it takes so long to preach. At least I get tangled up. I, I'm not a quick preacher and I can't cover a lot of ground because there's so many nuggets there. And my small mind has a hard time just picking one, you know. Uh, so it, it is tough sometimes. But what I want to attempt to do this morning is, is that I want to focus in on the rights of individuals and when we should use those rights and when we should make no use of those rights. And I'm going to approach this in a way that I hope would be biblical, would be foundationally built and founded in the gospel, in, in the word of the living God, but also applicable to us, especially in a cultural age where rights and the rights of individuals is a hot button issue it's a hot topic in our time of you know what what rights do we have how uh how forcefully should we um should we protect those rights and so on and so forth so uh the title of today's message is when now listen to the title because it's it's important when to make no use of your rights when to make no use of your rights. That's what I'm going to be tackling today. Now, in order to do this, I want to back up a little bit and I want to give a little bit of context to what Paul's preaching and, and teaching to the Corinthians here in chapter 9 uh, because this, these texts in chapter 9 are used for a lot of different things and to prove or to teach a lot of different truths. And I'm not saying that those are necessarily wrong that like I said there are a lot of good nuggets in this text in chapter 9 of first Corinthians but oftentimes we we tend to see people pull these lessons out of context and just to kind of build a case for a, a topic that they want to prove okay and I'm not against topical preaching today's sermon is topical okay I believe that there is a right way and a wrong way to do topical preaching and I do tend to lean toward liking and, and desiring more to preach in, a, in an ex, uh, exegetical, expositional way, which is preaching through books of the Bible. But I do, obviously, see a very strong need to uh, touch on topics and issues. And I feel very comfortable doing that. A lot of people say you should never preach anything but uh, uh, exegetically and ex, you know, expositionally through a book. But the problem with that is, is that, at least in my view, the biblical authors seem to be teaching on topics from the Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, I feel in good company when we are touching. But there is a right and a wrong way to do a topical sermon. And this is, this is just a point as we go by, as I'm preaching a topical sermon. You can preach a topical sermon exegetically, meaning that instead of just plucking one verse out of its context to try to prove the point that you're going to make, that you could go to a text of scripture that proves that point, but really lay a good case out with all of the surrounding verses and show how the author is also talking about the topic that you're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's look at the surrounding context, and I'm just going to read through this kind of quickly because we're not going to really get into the meat of what Paul says before and after this section of Scripture, but we just want to lay the groundwork. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about his rights. He's talking about actually the specific right to 
be able to be paid for the gospel work that he's doing, okay? If you know much about Paul, he actually was bivocational. He did receive some gifts from different churches, but those gifts were primarily for whatever project he was working on. It seemed, the text seems to suggest, in a broad view, that Paul took care of his personal needs by working. He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. He was really emphatic on people working and working hard, being diligent to um, work with their hands. He, he lifted this up. He exalted working with your hands and, and being busy with, with um, working around the house, building things, and just, just overall not being lazy, just working to provide and not, um, not feeding off of people, really not being a bum, okay? That's what Paul's really up on is not being a bum. We, I know lots of bums, okay? Our culture, our country actually uh, lifts up and exhausts bumness, okay, if that's a word. I just made it one. If it's not, you have it now in your vocabulary. Uh, we, uh, as a nation, we actually incentivize people to not work, okay, which is insanity. But I'm not, I'm not going to get on that topic, okay? That's not the topic of the day. But let's listen to what Paul says about the right that he has to receive income uh, from the ministry that he does, okay? Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, Paul here is making the case that if he wanted to refrain from working a, a second job, that he has the right to do that. That it was accepted practice that those who worked in the temple and those who were apostles and those who worked in the ministry, that they would set aside their secular jobs and that they would just work full-time in the ministry and they wouldn't have to work a second job because the ministry would provide for their needs. It would provide for their food, their drink, their clothing, their necessities so that they would be able to focus on the gospel. Paul here is saying, now he hasn't took advantage of that, but he's saying, this is my right. If I wanted to do that, there's nothing that would, would make it okay for you to deny me that right. He's making the case. You can see it. He says, is it only Barnabas and I that can't tap into this? He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And he's continuing to progress and build his case here. And what he says is, is that he says, you know, the ox that's working in the field, he gets to eat the grain too. You don't, why do you not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain? Because if you do, he's going to get weak, he's going to get weary, and he's going to fall over. And he's not getting to take advantage of the work that he's doing. So don't muzzle the ox because he needs to be able to eat some of the grain that he's treading in order to sustain his strength to continue to uh, 
work in the field to continue to work that uh, that product and that harvest. He also makes the example of a soldier. He says, who, who serves as a soldier as, at his own expense? You don't, when you go into the army, you don't go into the army and then get a second job so that you can pay your way through fighting someone else's war, right? You are employed by the army. You are taken care of by the army or that defense system that you're working for. No one serves as a soldier at his own expense or plants a vineyard and so on and so forth. Uh, I'll come back to this um, in, just a mo- in just a moment on the basis of how we establish rights, but let's move on from here. All we're looking at now is, is that Paul is working hard to establish that he does have rights, okay? He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Here's where I told you that there's so many perspectives from this. This lends heavily to how Paul sees the Old Testament applying in the New Testament setting, how the old administration now applies in the new administration. So this would take us from being antinomians or, you know, we don't care about the law. There's no law, no Old Testament. We just unhinge from the, uh, unhitch from the Old Testament. No, no, no. Paul makes use of the Old Testament, but we're not bound under the Old Testament, but we still are absolutely relevant to the Old Testament. Now we just look at it through a different lens, and we look, and Paul is using the Old Testament to establish a concrete principle in the New Testament. We'll come back to that in just a moment, too. He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? He says he's not really concerned. He is concerned about oxen in a historical grammatical context. But is, he, is, is oxen is what he's primarily concerned about. Is that what that is all about? He says, no, it's about something broader, something about something bigger than that. It has a bigger reality than just those oxen. He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? You know, the... Um, the absolute literalist would say, you can't apply an Old Testament text to a New Testament person like that, or the meaning like that. You can't. Now, Keith, we're going to have to talk about this later, aren't we, right? You can't do that. And so, Keith, I think you would call it application, right? That's, that's good. I would say that it's an expanded meaning on that and a greater reality. I think that we're talking about the same thing and words are uh, a little bit blurry there. But anyway... What we see here is Paul is reaching back to an Old Testament text and he's saying, when God wrote that, it was for our sake. That's, that's, that is showing us how we are to look. If this is how the Apostle Paul read the Old Testament, we say, wow, he's teaching us, even as he's teaching about another subject, he's teaching us how to apply and how to read the Old Testament and how, to, how it applies to us. He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope for sharing in, of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So lots and lots of stuff there. But what I want to point out is first and foremost that Paul is making a case that he has certain rights, which is our point number one. Number one, first, okay, so remember what the question, remember what the title is. When should we make no use of our rights? And and in, in contrast to that, necessarily, when should we make use of our rights? Okay, so the first point I want to make is in order to know when not to make use or when to make use of any rights that you might have, we first must recognize that we have rights, okay? 
because you can't not make use or make use of something that you don't really have anyway. Now, in, in my thinking, as I walk through this, I just jotted this first one down. First, in order to know when to make no use of our rights, we must acknowledge that rights exist. Okay, so Paul here is making a pretty strong case that he has certain rights. In this instance, he has the right to take a commission or to take um, a living or an income from the ministry that he's doing. Now, oddly enough, Paul is not making this case, and this is going to be where I'm ho I hope, I sincerely hope, that you're listening to me exegete through this passage, not just listening for the truth that I'm telling you, but trying to track with me to see how I came to the conclusions that I came to and what the method is that we would understand what the text even says. Because what I'm going to show you now is Paul's primary goal now in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is not about establishing the fact that he has rights and he needs to be paid now. We just spent, what, 11 verses reading how Paul is establishing the fact that he has rights. I have a right. Is it Barnabas and I only that we don't have the right to take a wage? Should we have to work? Soldiers don't have to work when they're in the army. Oxen get to eat the, the, the grain on the ground. Why, do, why would we not have a right? We have rights, right? He's spending all this time and effort and energy establishing the fact that he has rights. But that's in no way what the text is about in this section. He is, he is laying down a foundational truth that they have rights in order to exalt the gospel. You're like, what? Hold on a second. Well, let's continue on. First and foremost, he lays down the actual truth that rights do exist. Are we on the same page so far? Can you see that in the text? Paul does that very clearly. So Paul lays down this, this fact that rights exist and he has rights. Barnabas has rights. Ministers, period, have rights. So can we use this text when we are trying to build the governance of the church or trying to figure out whether or not a pastor should get paid? Could we use this text? Sure, Paul makes a really good case. But is that the primary meaning of this text? We're going to find out here in just a minute. So the next question that comes to my mind is, okay, so we have rights. People have rights, at least in this instant. Let's don't get out of context. At least in this instant, Paul and ministers have rights, okay? They have a right to be paid through the ministry that they do, okay? And part of that is built on so that they could actually focus on the ministry. Think about an oxen in the field, right? The oxen doesn't have any other jobs, at least not at that moment. You may go plow another field. But for that particular field, he's, he is working in that field. And when, he's, when he is eating the grain in that field that he's threshing, he's doing so so that he would get energy and sustenance and be sustained to continue to work that field, right? And so that's, that's Paul's argument. He's saying that we've been called to ministry and we shouldn't have to go do something else so that we could continue the work of the ministry. We have the right to tap into what the ministry produces so that we can then turn around and focus on the ministry. So it's for the ministry, it's for the gospel. Okay. So we asked the question, where do these rights come from? Okay, where do these rights come from? And I would even say, now this is me reading this text and making a little bit of application. I think that we can learn 
where rights come from, period, as we apply the same truths and the same biblical logic that Paul applies to where his rights came from that he's laying out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You guys follow me so far? Where do rights come from? Okay, so this is what Paul says here. He says, go back. Now, he's building a case based on what the norms are in the culture, okay? So we could go to that case, because he says here, he says, you know, uh, we'll, we'll go back to this, but he's, at first he says, do, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? Now, this is his first line of reasoning up in verse uh, 5. And so he first starts to say, look, you guys have accepted this with the other apostles, You've accepted this in other times, in other situations, in other circumstances. There are other apostles, Cephas, others that are in the ministry. They take their living from the ministry. You don't seem to have a problem with that. And he says, it's seemingly, do we not have the same rights as these? And so at the first glance, it may seem as if we could build our case for our rights on the supposed rights of those around us. Would you think that would be a really solid case? It may be a decent case. It may be a case of justice that we could build that on. Fairness, possibly. But are all situations different? Sure they are. And so do you think that that case might unravel at some point or may have holes that could be shot in it? I think so. So Paul then he moves further in establishing the baseline presupposition or the foundational principles of why he has these rights too. And I think in so doing, why those other apostles have those rights too, okay? So first of all, he says, well, these other apostles take advantage of these rights. Are you saying that Barnabas and I are the only ones that can't? That's, that's crazy. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is where he really establishes these rights. He says, do I say these things on human authority? There it is. There it is. He says, am I trying to establish the claim that I have the right to take an income? And I would say, Brennan, that rights, generally speaking, I might even say specifically speaking and, and just overall, can only be built and established when established in the word of the living God. If you want to be confident in those, and if you want to have uh, assurance that that actually is a right that you have, and not just a privilege, not just a momentary, temporary thing, but an actual right, then it would need to be established in the word of God. Now, what Paul says here, he says, do I say these things on human authority? You should right away ask the question, say what things, right? We've already been talking about it, so maybe it's in the forefront of your mind. But the things are what? Taking a salary or, or a, um, a wage from working in the ministry, a right, yeah. This right of taking this salary, taking your living from the ministry. Am I saying these things about these rights on human authority? It's a rhetorical question. He says, no, does not the law say the same? He says, this reality, this right, this principle is built on, established on, 
and comes forth from the word of the living God. It comes from the law. This is, Paul in, in essence is saying, this has been established long before we ever got to this point. This has been established. So not to belabor the point, but first we have to acknowledge where, that we have rights. Secondly, we have to acknowledge and establish where do these rights come from. And I'm making the suggestion that at least in this case, and I think it can be made even in a more broad sense, is that true rights come from the word of the living God. And I would say can't be established as strongly in any other method, if at all. So if you have a, a right that has been given to you by God that no one can take away from you, that is established based upon the word of God and the word of God alone. Okay? So, he says, do I do these things on human terms? No. He lays it out that it's from the law. He goes and he uses Old Testament specific historical context, Old Testament laws, passages, and he takes the underlying principle from those laws and he applies that through a Christocentric or a gospel-centered or Christ-centered lens. He's reading the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. And basically what he's saying, let me try to say it this way. Basically what Paul is doing is saying, remember back what God said about the oxen treading out the grain to the, to the nation of Israel? Remember what he said about the oxen to the nation of Israel? Well, that same law to them, it's, you know, we're not, we're not still worried about oxen and things like that, but that same law, that law was built on eternal principles that apply even today. So the specific physical application for the nation is not applicable to us in that same way, but the, the, the principle underneath that law is absolutely still applicable to us today and still uh, it's, it is still uh, binding on us in, in some sense because it is the principles of God that those laws were built upon. And here we see how he does it. He says, was it oxen that God was concerned with? No. He was saying that for our sake so many years later. How? Because the principle of not muzzling the ox so that he wouldn't fall down dead because he couldn't have his needs met are the same principles that apply to us today. So do, are, do rights exist? Yeah, absolutely. How, do, how are those rights established? At least in this particular instance, and maybe a case could be made that you could build a case for rights in another way. Pulling from this, Paul goes to the what? The Scripture. He says, these rights that I have are rooted in the Scripture. Now, I need to move on to that, but right before I do, I want to say this too. Rights that are uh, founded and established through the Scripture are rights that we can trust. Okay? Oftentimes, we try to claim or we try to bolster or tap into, take advantage of rights that are not established in Scripture, but rather established through the state. Okay? That is very dangerous. You need to understand this, is that while, okay, let me back up. Let me say it this way. While we are under the authority 
of the state in which we live. Now, that could be the United States. That could be the United Kingdom. You could be wherever. Whatever government, government that, you, uh, that you are under, that you uh, are, are submitting to, that's in authority over you, that we are under the authority of those governments as long as those governments are not calling us to contradict or to go against the authority of the Bible. Does that make sense to you? When there is a contradiction or when there is a conflict between what the state is calling us to do or even permitting us to do, and what the Word of God is calling us to do or not allowing us to do or negating that we can do, the Word of God must always win out in your life if you're a Christian. So this goes back to the point I was saying that your rights must be founded in the Scripture and nowhere else as the primary foundational principle of your right. I'll give you an example. There are many rights that you have that you really don't have, and they are no rights at all, but they are damnation, and they are unbiblical, and they are wicked, and they are sinful. And not only should they not be rights, but they should be outlawed and declared criminal offenses this is where the government has stepped over the line and we need to push back on that okay I'll give you an example it is a right in the United States of America right now for uh, different reasons it is not a law but it is a right right now that a woman can kill her baby if she desires with little to no reason in the least. Would you agree with me that that is the right of female citizens in the United States of America for the most part in most states? That is a, do what? Yes. What'd you say? Perceived. Yes. Which is my point. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> this is a perceived right. And if you're not a Christian and you are just a secularist, you could be an atheist, whatever. And the only authority that you have over you supposedly is the United States of America. You would say or claim, I have the right. It's, it, it's been claimed. It is a women's right issue, correct? No, it is not. It is a sin issue. Now, it is a perceived right of so those in the United States that they have the right to kill their babies for little to no reason at all. Is that a real right? Is it a real right? Absolutely not. You, you do not have the right to take innocent life. We could go on and on and on and on and on. Therefore, we must understand that our rights come from the Word of God and the Word of God alone. It must be founded with the principles in the Word of God. Now, do we mean that you have no rights unless you can find it explicitly stated in the Scripture? I don't think we mean that either. But what we mean is, is that you must have solid biblical evidence and a case from Scripture that these are the rights that one should have. Okay, so I have 
beat that one to death. Now I need to move on. Secondly, in order to know, so let me, let me go back and, and just remind everybody, because I want to make this clear as I can. First point, title of the message is when to know, uh, when to make, you, to make no use of your rights. Let me say it again. The title of the sermon is when to make no use of your rights. So in order to establish when we should not make a use, or really even when we should make use of our rights too, we've established that Paul is making the case that we do have rights. Number two, those rights come from Scripture. Number three, just because you think you might have a right doesn't mean you have a right if it's not founded on Scripture. Okay, so going back, when do we make no use of our rights? Let's look. We know we have rights. Second point is this. In order to know when to make no use of your rights is to determine uh, where personal rights fall in the scale of priorities. Okay? This is Paul's, really his second point in this whole discourse right here. So, firstly, we have rights. Secondly, how important are those rights? Where do they fall in our priorities? And let me make it as simple as I can. There may be a situation in your, li in your life, in your everyday life, where a certain, a, a certain situation is presented to you. And you have rights as an American citizen, as a Christian, as a human being. You have certain rights. And you could take advantage of that right. But in so doing, in taking advantage of the right that you have, it may do more damage than if you were to not take advantage of your right and maybe, maybe receive some type of, uh, of pain or loss yourself. Does, does that make sense to you? There may be certain situations where, yeah, you've got the right to bear arms. You've got the right uh, to life. You've got the right to drive. You've got the right. You've got lots of rights, right? We've got lots of rights. But it may be a situation to where it's not that big of a deal for you to lay aside this right for a moment, maybe temporarily, maybe for good, in order to bring about a greater good. One point I think that Paul, that we're all familiar with this text, Paul says, I have, I, you know, I'm free to do all things. Uh, I'm free to eat meat or to drink wine. He makes this case in Romans chapter 14. I, I'm, I'm free to do all things. I'm not bound by any law here like that. I can, I, I'm free. Then he goes on to say, but I choose not to, to eat meat or to drink wine unless I cause my brother to stumble. And this is not an overarching statement that he's just going to become um, totally abstaining from these things. But the context there is, is that he's in the presence of a brother or a sister. He's in the presence of someone that their conscience isn't as free. They don't have the right to do that. They're bound up in their conscience. They don't have these freedoms. And they think the person who doesn't have the right to do this, they don't have the freedom. They don't have this, this, this mobility. They don't have, they don't, they're, they're bound up. That they think that this is a great sin. And Paul says, when I'm in the presence of these brothers, when I'm in the presence of these who, they're believers, but they're still working through some of the things that they're working through, and, 
And even if they're not working towards something, that this is the, the relationship that God has brought them into, and they still feel bound to certain food laws, or whether that was from the Old Testament, or whether it was tradition, whatever it was, they were, they were bound up in their conscience. They didn't feel they had the right to these things. And they felt like when someone took part in these things, it was kind of sinful. And Paul says, now I have the right. I have a free conscience. I'm free to, it doesn't, I'm not bound up by anything. I can eat meat. I can drink wine. It doesn't really bother me. But what bothers me is that if I took advantage of this right and this freedom, if I took advantage of this in the presence of my, my brother, my religious brother, who he's not in the same place I am, I would argue that Paul's saying that, this is a, a, a weaker brother, but, but if you, you can make the case the other way. One of them is, is weaker in the text, whichever. But Paul says, if I'm in the presence of my brother here, and he would just be torn to pieces if I took a bite of this juicy steak or maybe a pork chop, you know, whatever it might be. Maybe this guy's a vegetarian. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with the dietary port line, whatever it might be. He just, he had a hard time with me eating meat. Now, I could approach this in two ways. I could say, well, I've got the right, you know, and he would be torn up. He would think I was in sin. His heart would break for me. He might start to judge me in his heart, and his relationship with God is now really in a tougher spot because I, I, the the right to eat and to drink was so high on my priority list that I just devastated my brother. That my rights were more important than his well-being, his faith, his relationship with God. And this was the problem. And so Paul says, look, I've got the right to eat and to drink, but man, I push this away. I'll never eat and drink again if it's going to cause my brother to stumble, right? So that's my point here is that the secondly where do our rights fall in the the priority list that we have where do they fall and and do you even think about this i would i would not hesitate to say most people don't think about this if you're thinking about this then you're more mature than the average christians what i just that's just subjective thoughts of mine okay because most people what is their first thought what is my rights even in gospel uh, conversations, in, in the theology that they have, in the interactions that they have, in the business that they do, whatever it might be, what do I have the right to do? And you better give me what I have the right to have. That's, that's what's most important. I have rights. But a mature believer, a mature uh, person of faith, they're not looking at that. They're looking at this, and name the situation. You think that I'm talking some big lofty thing. I'm not. I'm talking just everyday dealings in business, in driving, in driving. When you're getting, okay, listen, let me, let me do it this way. And I didn't plan this, so I hope it comes out right. When getting, when getting on the interstate and using an on-ramp, You have, now I could do, go many different ways than this. First thing I'll say is don't stop in the own ramp, okay? Don't stop in the own ramp. But for those who do stop, stop in the own ramp, 
Do not take advantage of your right to extend fingers from your hand. And I don't mean saying, hey, you're number one, okay? Do not do that. Let's do it this way, though. When coming onto the interstate, you have a right to get into and to come over in the interstate right-hand lane. But do you think that it might be smart to think about how much you want to prioritize that right when there's a transfer truck in the right-hand lane coming up the interstate at about 85 miles per hour? It may be better to put that right to merge down on the priority list below getting run over by the transferred truck, right? In other words, we are all prioritizing our rights every single day, do we not? Every day. Now, let me, let me read some more text here before we just talk ourselves to death. He says here, as, as he's finished up and establishing his right, he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do, do, we, <clears throat> do not we even more? Basically, he's saying that we have these rights and we've really worked diligently among you. Surely you wouldn't uh, deprive us of this. But then he goes on to say this, and we're talking about the prioritization of rights now in point number two. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Why, Paul? Paul didn't make use of the right. He's saying, I have the right. I've established I have the right. I've established that God has told me I have the right. But nevertheless, I'm not going to tap into that right. Why, Paul? He says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Hmm. A little bit of insight when you're reading the scripture. I don't know about you, but when I read this, my mind automatically goes to, wait a minute, what obstacle? Does your mind go there? It should, right? And it might go somewhere else. We go, but we say, wait a minute, Paul just built a pretty good case that he has a right to material things in a spiritual ministry. But then he steps back and he says, now I have the right and I've established it. But you know what? I choose to forego the right. I'm not going to make use of it. Rather, I am not going to do anything that would put an obstacle in the progress of the gospel. You back up and you say, I see. This gives insight. So apparently, him taking a payment or income from the Corinthian believers in exchange for his ministerial work became an obstacle to the furtherance of the gospel. And now we kind of get into some more subjective just kind of thoughts on what that might be. I imagine that there were those grumbling, and it happens today too, those grumbling that, now we don't have a clue what Paul might have made if he was going to get paid but how have you ever heard this that preacher's just doing it for the money that pre now do preachers just do it for the money sometimes yeah. <laughs> absolutely they do some do paul says i don't want you to think that i'm doing this for the money 
So Paul says, you know what? I got a right to get paid from you guys. But if it's going to trip you up so that the gospel doesn't go forward as I would hope that it would, just keep your money. Whoo, man, just keep your money. You know what? I don't mind working with my hands. I got blisters on my hands. That's what Paul's saying. He said, look at my hands. I'm not worried about your money. Keep your money. I don't do this for the money. I do this for the gospel. Now, going back to point number two, you see what I'm saying? So first we've got to figure out, do we have rights? Paul says, yeah, I got rights. I, I built my case on a biblical foundation of Old Testament scripture. I've got the right to get paid. But number two, in figuring out when we should make use and not make use of our rights, we've got to figure out where these rights fall on the scale of priorities. Yeah, I've got a right. But my right to get paid, Paul speaking, my right to get paid is not as much of a priority to me as how well the gospel goes forth among you. How much could we learn as Christians today through Paul's message here to the Corinthians? How often do you, now I just ask you to examine yourself. I have to examine myself. I promise you this because it is a knee jerk, you know, we, we fell along with Adam in the fall, right? And when we fell with Adam, you know, when Adam fell, we adopted and inherited a sin nature. And even from infancy, your earliest memories, I mean, a baby that, that is, is learned nothing, is, is months old, is screaming in demand, give me what I want, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I can sympathize, <laughs> right? Give me what I want. And, and the older that child gets, the more pronounced their sinfulness, right? Not only do they demand it, but they will manipulate and lie, steal, and cheat to get what they are rightfully owed, their perceived rights. And their number one word, at least mine was, was mine, 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 mine. And they said that about everything that was actually not theirs, right? No, that is not mine. Mine. We have this tendency to exalt our rights above everything else and forget those who would pay the price. Who cares? I have a right. But should you prioritize your rights? Okay. So number two, secondly, in order to know when to make no use of your rights is to determine where personal rights fall on the scale of priorities. The reality is even proper biblical rights. Now check this out. Now listen, put your listening ears on. The reality is even proper biblical rights of the individual do not supersede every other reality. Even, a rea even the right that you have and you can firmly uh, uh, establish in the word of the living God does not mean that it is the most important and foundational thing that exists in your life. 
even if you can establish it. Paul here sets the progress and proclamation of the gospel uh, above his own biblical rights. You see, Paul has spent the first 11 to 12 verses establishing that he has a right established by the living God in the scriptures. And then goes on to say, but I set it aside. Why? So that the gospel might go forth. It's the gospel. Paul, at the very beginning of the book, several times, he says, I choose to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. I proclaim nothing but Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Christ is the priority. The gospel is the priority. And we exist. We exist in order to further the gospel and not to proclaim and exalt our rights as individuals. Now, are rights important? Because what you could hear me saying is that we should be Christian pacifists. Lay down, shut up, let them kill you, let them do whatever they would want to do. Never speak up, never say anything, just be passive. Whatever happens, happens Lay down all of your rights all of the time. No. I'll give you an example. I thought this was a pretty good way to bring balance back in. Because if we're not careful, right, we go from one ditch. We go straight back right into the other ditch, you know. And we've got to be careful. So I'm not saying Paul's here. He's making a case that he has rights. But those rights should be prioritized and that the rights of the individual, even if established biblically, should not supersede the progress and proclamation of the gospel. But are there times where we should take advantage of rights? Absolutely. I won't take all the time to go there. But we know in Acts chapter 16 verse 37 that Paul was born with Roman citizenship. He had the right to Roman citizenship. Okay? Now, there came a point in Paul's life where he had the decision to make whether or not to make use of his right as a Roman citizen for what? Anybody know? When he was about to be killed, flogged, uh, taken to, before the Jews and, and, and murdered, basically. So in Acts chapter uh, 22, in Acts chapter 25 and 22, he uh, makes a plea. He invokes his right as a Roman citizen in order to escape Jewish flogging. He says, is this legal to flog a Roman citizen, right? And they're like, hold up. That, and, and they were scared of the Romans. You don't do that. Now, you could buy Roman citizenship, but it was very expensive. Paul was born into Roman citizenship, and he took a lot of beatings, right? It wasn't like he invoked this all the time. But here, and now, I may be reading a little into this. I'll give you that right up front. But... Judging by the other text of Paul's teaching and his general attitude toward this thing, Paul was being about to be flogged and, and possibly killed by this mob. But he invoked his right as a Roman citizen so that he would not. Why do you think that is? So he could keep preaching. Ah! So we make no use of our rights when making no use of our rights would further the progress and proclamation of the gospel and 
we make full use of our rights when making full use of our rights would further the progress and proclamation of the gospel. So it's all about the gospel. Whether we eat or whether we drink, we do all things as if unto the Lord. Everything is about the gospel. Everything is about the gospel. And uh, remembering that Paul, he wasn't afraid to die. He did not invoke his, Roman, his right as a Roman citizen to go before Nero. He did, not, he did not invoke that in order to save his life. We know that because in Acts, when he was uh, led before Agabus and, and he was about to go to Jerusalem in chapter 20, Agabus, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, take, he says, Paul, let me have your belt. And Paul takes off his belt. He's like, all right, here you go. Here's a belt. And, and the text says that he's a prophet. And this prophet, Agabus, he takes Paul's belt and he binds Paul's hands up. And he says, don't go to Jerusalem because the Lord has said, whoever, whoever, uh, whoever this belt belongs to, so this will happen to him. And what does Paul say? Paul says, Brothers, why are you breaking my heart? Why are you breaking my heart? I'm paraphrasing. He looks at him. He says, why? Because they're pleading. They're weeping. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. Because you will be bound. You will suffer. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? Paul says, do you not know that I would gladly accept not only imprisonment, but even death for the gospel of my Lord? Where is the gospel? Where is the proclamation of Christ crucified on Paul's priority list? Is it above or below the preserving of his life? What? It is above. It's more important even than his, his very life. Now, if Paul has exalted the progress and proclamation of Jesus Christ and the gospel above his own life, do you think that he has exalted it above his rights to food and to drink and to whatever else? Absolutely. Absolutely. So thirdly and lastly... We can say with confidence that we make no use of our rights when it will increase the likelihood of the gospel going forth. So remember the message of, the t of, the, of today's, the title of today's message. When to make no use of your rights and necessarily when to make use of. First, we said that well, we've got to establish that we have rights first. And we've done that. Paul did that. Did it pretty handily. We established not only do we have rights, but those rights are established in the word of the living God. That's how we know what rights are legit and what rights aren't. If there's a perceived right and it's contradictory to the word of God, throw it out. It's not a right. It's something else altogether. Number two. Secondly, in order to know when to make no use of our rights is uh, to determine where those personal rights fall on the scale of our priorities. And we went through this point and we said, 
we can establish that by having those rights prioritized in light of the gospel. And the gospel is our number one priority, and everything comes after that. And we can, we can get to this place to know when to make use of our rights and when not to make use of our rights with this question. Will the invoking of this right or the uh, denying of this right, will it further the progress and proclamation of the gospel? So you're presented with a situation. You know you have the right to do ABC. You say, but if I do ABC, will it make the gospel go forth more easily or with, uh, or, or with more problems or with more struggle? And that will help you. And then thirdly, as we finish out, we can say with confidence after these first two points and after this text that we make no use of our rights when it will increase the likelihood of the gospel going forth. Further, we also conclude that making use of our rights should only be done when it would be beneficial to the progress and proclamation of the gospel. So here's the baseline truth as we look at this. Now, uh, you know, I could... I could keep on going in this and, and show you how Paul just keeps grinding in this, this idea that the gospel is greater, the gospel is greater, the gospel is greater. But I just want to read briefly and then end with us looking to Christ. He says, nevertheless, we have not made, this is verse, the second part of verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of, of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So again, he establishes that we'll forego even though we do have the right. But listen to what he says here. It's really important. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. No, now, watch this. <laughs> so he just spent, I don't know how long, establishing that he's got the right to get paid. To put it as simply as I know how. He says, but I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Not any such provision. He said, i got the right to get paid. I've proven I've got the right to get paid, but I'm not telling you I've got the right to get paid to get paid. You see it? You see him saying that? That's what he's saying. He says, For I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul says, I've got the right to get paid, but I am foregoing the right to get paid so that you might know that I do this for Jesus Christ and not the money. Now, does that mean that every pastor should forego their right to get paid in order to establish the legitimacy of their call and of their love for the gospel? Absolutely not. But for whatever reason, Paul, in this situation and in this 
circumstance was having obstacles or, or having issues that brought about obstacles that made it seem as if he wasn't legit. He, didn't, he was doing this for the money. And Paul says, look, I've been a tent maker for quite a while now. I have no problem with this. And I'm going to keep right on making tents. And it may just have been a personal choice for Paul. It may have been in Paul's conscience. It, it may not have even been a big of a deal as it seems to have been. They may have come around. Who knows? But Paul, in his sensitivity and his conscience, says that, I'm, I'm just interjecting some of my thoughts here, seems to be thinking, if I take a wage from these people, they're going to think that I'm preaching and proclaiming the gospel in order to get paid. So you know what? I'm not going to take a dime so that everyone would know that I do this for the gospel and I do not do it for the wage. And I'm not going to get into this. This kind of this is kind of what I was aiming at at this sermon, but I will say as a side note, Paul also goes into this place where he says that if I was doing it for the money, then I would be obligated to do it. And doing it may be perceived as me doing it out of obligation to do it. And that I'm dependent on those who have, who have set me forth as the one who would do it in order to receive my wage. And I don't want to be I don't want to be dependent on anyone. I want to be doing this of my own free will, providing for myself so that I can preach and I can run the race with endurance. I can do what I've been called to do. And I'm not dependent on anybody. And they're, they're, nobody has any strings on me. And I'll tell you that he does have a pretty good point in many ways. Now, am I for no pastors getting paid? I, I am not. I am not. But I will say this that I have pastors that I know personally who are friends of mine that I have talked to. I would not call a name, but I have talked to, and they're good. I think they're good men. They have hearts for the Lord. But they have told me out of their own mouth, Brandon, I can't preach like that, just speaking, just preach the Bible. Whatever falls, whatever drops, drops. Because I feel as if, I would be fired or I would be. Now, some, I don't think all of that is just a money thing. I think some of that is I think I can do more good if I'm careful with these topics and things like that. Some of it may be money thing. But I'm just telling you that Paul's on to something. Because how many times does a preacher stay away from the really hard biblical truths that would go against their own tradition because of the fear of what it would do to their paycheck? Right? If you don't get paid, what are they going to do? Fire you? Right? What are you going to do? Fire them? I think Paul's on to something there. That's a side note. Coming back to the point here is this. Be careful how you make use of your rights. Lest you be combative against and unless you hinder the gospel. Now, as the band comes on up, well, I'm finished up. I want to point this out. That we see this teaching in Paul of when to forego our rights. When it would 
benefit and further the gospel, right? That we don't make use of those rights when it would benefit and further the progress and proclamation of the gospel. We see this taught by Paul, but we see it lived out and enabled by Jesus. You see, Jesus lived this out to the ultimate degree in front of, uh, in front of our eyes in the scripture, in, in, in front of us. Jesus' whole life on earth, his, his whole existence on earth for the 33 years that he lived as the, the coming Messiah on the earth, not that he doesn't now, Jesus is the Messiah, but his whole 33-year ministry on earth was a denial of the rights that he had for the further for the, further, for the furthering and the progress and the proclamation and the establishing and the doing of the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the living God. He's existed for all of eternity. He was, he was with God in the beginning and before the beginning. He was with God and he was God. Gloriously existing in perfect harmony with the Trinity. And he came in human form, in human history, denying himself and taking on the form of a servant. You see, Christ says he has the right to exist. He had the right to exist for all of eternity in perfect bliss with the Father and the Spirit and not come down into this mess. He didn't have to do that. He had the right not to do that. But he forwent the right to continue on and he came down here. He had the right to never die. Why? Because he had no sin. He, fore, he forewent that. He set that aside. Jesus Christ had the right not to suffer. Jesus Christ had the right to never die, to never be put into a grave, to never experience that. He set that aside. Jesus Christ set aside the right to punish wicked sinners for the benefit of forgiveness in the gospel. You guys see it? Jesus Christ set aside his rights in order to further the gospel and to save lost sinners. If you're a lost sinner today, just know that Jesus Christ did not count uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to. But he let it go. He emptied himself. And he became one of us. He became a servant, even taking on the form of a bondservant, even to the point of death. Jesus Christ has demonstrated just exactly what Paul is talking about. And for those of you here who are believers, I would ask you, what is most important in your life? What is the priority of your life? Is it making sure that you have what you deserve and that you get to take use and make use of every right that you have? Or is it that the gospel is that which is most important and that you die daily in order to make sure that the gospel goes forth and you lay aside, you're willing to be abused. You're willing to be thought less of. You're willing to not take a wage. You're, really, you're willing to 
to, 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 to just love and to be considered less so that Christ might be considered more. As we all stand to our feet, and as you continue to think about these things today, I would challenge you to think about how important your rights are to you and how important the gospel is to you. Compare those two, see where you fall, and you do business with God. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to have a song here to finish up, and you have an opportunity to respond to the message that you've heard, and however that God is leading you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather with our friends, our brothers, our sisters. We pray, God, that we would have you as the central, most important reality that we have ever known. And God, while we do thank you and acknowledge that you have given us rights, Lord, we pray that those rights would not supersede your gospel and that we would be all about you and your business, that we would consider ourselves nothing that we might lift you up to live as Christ and to die as gain. We give it all to you in Christ's holy and magnificent name. Amen. Do business with God, people of God.